So you know, you know, packing tape when you you unroll it and it fucking screams at you. You know, it's just yeah. like Ooh, uh, yeah. it's horrible, the worst noise in the universe. Oh, I kind of like that noise. Uh, <laughs> 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 Hey everybody, welcome to episode 376 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm the webs programmer. I'm Sam and I'm the artist. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today's August uh, 12th, 2020U. Before we get started, we have a warning. Anything could happen on this show, including me being confused about where I am and what year it is. <laughs> you do seem a little confused. Yeah, it will happen. You were totally I was looking ahead at the date and I was like, is that today? I feel, right? I feel like it's either seven days ahead or behind, but for some reason it feels like it can't possibly be August 12th. Take right? the average right. of, you know, the max and min of your range there and you're perfectly on target. That's you true. Yeah. 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 So anyway, that really, I, I have no idea where I am right now somehow. It's been a weird <laughs> week, but we'll talk about it. Um, but anyways, there's going to be profanity on this show, you know, oh, just yeah. so that's, that's coming. Uh, we'd also like to thank our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net. Thanks for letting us grab your money. Uh, all right, yeah. let's get into this episode. Okay. Yeah. We, first off, what? first off, we need yeah. to have a, we need to have a, ta- a tape off. Mm-hmm. What okay. is a tape off? Is where we talk about tape. Yeah. Just tape. you know, we cover a you lot know. of topics on this pod, and when we have, we just haven't. You know, I we apologize. We haven't have not talked about tape. Talked about tape. Yeah. So this right, episode so make amends. Yeah. To get a get in. There. Yeah. What is this specifically tape a tape off though? Because Seth was about to tell us something about some kind of tape, and I was like, I have better tape, and. So we got we got to figure out who is the tape winner in this. Yeah, I got no opinions currently, so I'll, you don't. I'll yeah. Riff. All right, I'm so gonna have going some pretty to. quick. So onto tape. Here's the deal with tape. Uh, we have this rug in the office that has been pissing me off because it's set in such a way that like we have rolling, uh, you know, chairs, and we got the uh, the roller blade wheels on them so that they roll better and they're oh, you know yeah. higher up and stuff. But this carpet still gets tangled up in the in the wheels all the time and it and it keeps moving around and stuff right got one of those things underneath it like a little carpet pad yep. thing that's supposed to like keep it from moving which it does keep it from moving but it doesn't you know keep the edges of the carpet from getting tangled up in things that are being dragged around mm-hmm. uh and this this was a problem for just many moons perhaps months Several months. Uh, was always annoyed by it, and I kept thinking, like, do we get rid of this carpet? Do we get a different <laughs> carpet? Do we get a carpet that's, like, flatter, you know? Um, and then it finally just for some reason occurred to me, like, can't I just somehow just stick, stick this carpet to the, to the floor? And, yeah, there's carpet tape that's, like, meant for rugs. Oh, doesn't really leave any residue behind. Sticks really good to the bottom of the rug, you know. And just uh, just tape that bad boy down. One and done. So what's what Perfect. I find uh, horrifying about this is that for some reason, because I've also had similar problems in the uh-huh. past <laughs> years long, and yep. I don't know why, but similarly, all the things I thought about were the same solution set that you originally were talking about as far as like thinner rug, bigger rug pad, better cut rug pad, different kind of rug pad. Well, that's a bit stickier, but for some reason, <laughs> it never occurred to me. You could just stick the freaking rug tape it. to the floor. Just tape it to the floor. Now, it's, it is it's, usually it's, the case that the, that 
even if even a tape that in the short term is fine, like most tapes in the long term become not fine on various surfaces, you know, mm. even painter's tape, like painter's tape is the famously like, oh, yeah, you can just use that on stuff because it comes right yeah. off. So it's perfect, you know. But uh, if you do leave it on for a long time, then it's still th- – it's little little gross, little sticky tentacles start to just get in. So maybe you want to do like a tape refresher maybe like once every six months or something. You know? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, I, don't know what it is for I don't know what – that's yeah. worthwhile. You know, it's easy. You just yeah. rip it up, put it back on, call it good. That's yeah, it depends on it. But yeah, is yeah, it on wood? Like, is it like between wood and their rug? It's on wood, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that I mean that was one of those like oh. you know kind of light bulb moments where I thought why am I being so dumb about this <laughs> like no no amount of it's not that the carpet is slipping or moving it's that the edges of it are coming up right yeah. like when something passes over it just tape it down no problem so I'm I'm very proud of my problem solving skills I feel like uh a good pat on pat myself on the back for that one. You yep. know, that's a pretty so, good tape. So Adam, I don't know what kind of tape you got, but so the tape that I got <laughs> bring out your big I'm guns. actually because because we're probably not gonna have this segment again. So I'm gonna bring out two tapes. You know, just oh man. Oh shooting. fuck I didn't have I didn't bring a second but tape. The, the other one is a very specific purpose, so it's not really in the competition. It's more of just it's worth talking about. But okay, the one in the competition it. though is gaffer's tape. So Gaffer tape. I've, gaffer? I've, so that's like it's a, like the sound. It's like the it's something to do with like on a movie set. People are managing like AV equipment or something. Mm. So gaffer. It's like they need to. They're constantly having fuckloads of cords that need to be temporarily like taped down so people don't trip Got over it. them. Right. So mm-hmm. gaffer tape. Its whole thing is like it's it's like duct tape level of uh, like thickness, right, and like solidity kind of feeling, right. Mm. But stickiness of like some kind of powerful painter's tape that can still peel right back off. It's fucking weird. So like, uh, so, and it's meant to be, you know, stuck down for not like permanently, but for long periods of time, like, you know, days and weeks, um, without ripping stuff off. And, uh, so I'd been doing a lot of cable management cause I've got a, my desk is in the middle of the room and it's a, it's a standing desk that can move up and down. Right. And so it has to carry a bunch of cords with it and stuff. So I did just a fuckload of cable management, but the thing that was always driving me just batshit was you still have cables running across the floor. You still got they're plugged into the wall somewhere, you know, they're like mm-hmm. drops down and stuff, right? And I was just trying to figure out what to do about this. And at some point I was like, there has to be like a way just to tape this down and sort of assess the thing all over again, right? There's just gotta be <laughs> Wait. a way to do this, you know? <laughs> and uh, and it turns out the solution to that sort of thing is is gaffer's tape. Like that's what it's for. Mm. So I, I, it's very expensive because it's like this like very specific, probably patented, you know, kind of whole thing. It's like a but I just, thing, yeah. yeah, I just got like, I got a, a little pack of like the thinner stuff of like different colors, you know, so I could feel, I was like, I could use it to like label cords and stuff. And then some nice wide ones that were just like black for really sticking mm. things down. And I always forget that I have it because it's like so specific. But every time I need something and I need to stick something to something else and I need it to not be a big deal, confident it'll work. Like, mm. I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, it's the, the gaffer's tape, right? And to the point where when we were having our, we had our windows all replaced a few months ago and we had to go put up plastic in between rooms so that the dust wouldn't get everywhere, you know? And we have a brick wall inside of our house where oh, that's, yeah. that's what's separating two places. There's Good no door, it's just attaching a brick anything arch. To yeah, brick. you can't stick anything to that. You know what's stuck to that? No fucking problem. Gaffer's tape. No just, oh way. Just fucking, <laughs> it's dusty ass brick, you know, like, and it just stuck there and then it just came right off. It's All right, that's amazing. a pretty good Well, contender. I concede. I concede. 
I it's think, a more, it's I more mean, general purpose, but it wouldn't work for yeah. sticking your rug down because it's not two-sided. You know, so. but I bet you can you get two sided gaffer's tape or is that something about it? I just think it's because so gooey. I think I think it would just stick to itself. Now nah, looping is for chumps. Mm. You need double, you need double sided. Uh-huh. Okay, well so I mean my I mean I feel like my tape is is good for you know what it's for. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but but problem is it's not for everything. Yeah, gaffer's tape. It's definitely it's definitely too sticky. Uh, to do what gaffer's tape does. So maybe yeah. maybe it's that, you know, we should just really respect the unique qualities of the different tapes. That's true. And they all it's do not have about, purposes. It's not about which tape is better or worse. It's about which tape is right for you. Need, you. Yeah, you need some, what you're doing. You need some rug tape. You need some gaffer's tape. You need a... Uh, so, it sounds like that whiskey drink fog. What is that song? Need a oh, yeah. Drink, the need a the Jumba drink. Wumba. The Jumba Wumba um, song. Uh, tub thumping. <laughs> Uh, date, Deep cuts dating, yeah, dating yeah. our childhoods. Uh, mm-hmm. So then the other tape, which is not in the running, it's just very specific. Is mm. so you know you know packing a tape when you you unroll it and it fucking screams at you. You know it's just yeah. like Ooh, uh, yeah. it's horrible, the worst noise in the universe. Oh, I kind of like that noise. Uh, so <laughs> so if you've got sounds, so, so both my wife and I both like it. It's one of those things that sets us just off. You know, like that noise. It's just so. You remember dad used to hate red balloons? Yes, yeah, it's like that kind of a... It's uh, kind of the same sort of sound. Yeah, same idea. So it turns out that there's that... And it's not... I can't remember what it's called. It's just just like a fancier version of the tape. And it it doesn't even sell itself on being like quiet. But like its number one feature is that it's just quiet. Like you just unroll it and it's just... (laughs) Like you still hear it, right? What's it called? I I can't remember what it is right now. But it's, it's just... It's still just packing tape, right? But like it's just quiet packing tape. So... If packing tape noises drive you crazy, like they do me, uh, just Google around for quiet packing tape, and I'm sure it'll just come right up. It exists. Yeah. It wow. exists. So A tape for every person. Yeah, now you That's know. That's the world I want to live in, you know? Yeah, exactly. You got to have, you just got to have a good collection of tapes, you know, just mm-hmm. different kinds of tapes. A lot of people will be like, look at my, you look at my out liquor cabinet. I've got yeah. like all these different kinds of liquors. For every like, scenario. Nah, fuck that. Get yourself a tape cabinet. Yep. Yep. Somebody comes over, they got a problem. You have a tape that yep. will solve whatever. Well, actually, that is kind of have. funny, right? Because like, because tape is just another tool, just like anything else, right? Mm-hmm. But unless you're like a person who's into DIY stuff and all that, where you'd then you would like recognize the different purposes that you might need stuff for or whatever, you probably just have like a roll of duct tape. And then maybe the clear stuff, scotch tape, yeah. yep. some scotch tape. Yeah. And you have band-aids, and which band-aids. is tape for the body. Yep. You know? And yeah, but you probably just have like those and then you don't, <laughs> you don't like think about it as part of your real like tool arsenal. Right. But there's, there's a whole world of tape out there. Man, I frankly, it's, I got a lot of beefs with the tape for bodies industry because. Oh yeah. For the most bad. part. Sam just, had to deal with a lot of having things taped to his body with all the Lord. cancer treatments. Lord. Do you have any scars left over just from the tapes? Just from the tape. Honestly, like, because a a lot of people, myself included, turn out to be, you're just like lightly allergic to certain kinds of body tape. But of course, you don't know until afterwards. But sometimes it'll be on something that is designed to be on you for like two weeks. You know, like a port cover thing that they put on. This little plastic kind of like a little window they put over your uh, port in your chest. And the edges of it are, you know, just like a little adhesive kind of tape thing they plop down. And then after like a day or so, I was like, my chest kind of kind of itches, a little weird. <laughs> uh, and then you peel it off, and now you have a 
like almost like a burn, sort of a ring, now chemical burn. <laughs> yeah, it probably it is like, a chemical burn. Yeah, you know, you get your uh, get your blood draw done. And they use that. Sometimes they'll just be like, they feels like they pull out like a fucking gaffer's tape or something for the back and just sort of strap down a single cotton ball onto your arm for yep. a tiny little puncture wound, and then you rip that tape off and do more damage to your whole body by. You know, the yeah. arm hair removal process. Yeah, now that that whole like taping a cotton ball to your body uh-huh. thing after mm. you get blood drawn or something, I've never fully understood that because it seems way less effective than just a Band-Aid and also yeah. more likely to fall off. And it's awkward as fuck because you could like you could feel it. Yeah. But it's like a huge bump, you know, uh, now. I think it arm. works when you're do- specifically like if you do like a blood donation or something, something that makes you potentially bleed a lot that – you want to yeah. heal up, you know, but only when they wrap it like full on wrap, because then yeah. you're getting full pressure, pressure plus the, just the yeah. scale of the ball pushing into your skin. But they never do that. They no. just tape that shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a two inch piece of tape. And it's like <laughs> barely holding that cotton ball, you know, you know I had, sort of, I did a, mm-hmm. I had a flu shot Gosh. once and you know how like the flu shot needles are so tiny. They're just like fucking microscopic. Yeah. Didn't feel them. And so, so I had one once where she did it and then like, and then looked away to like go grab the bandage, you know, and then came back and couldn't see where she had done it because it didn't bleed. Cause it's a tiny needle, you know? <laughs> and so she just kind of looking at it for a second. Then she was just like, I'm not exactly sure where that was. So, I, but I think it was, she puts a bandaid over just random patch of skin. And I was like, you know, we could have, the solution there could have been, I guess you don't need a bandage. And so <laughs> put one on in a random spot. Yeah. I was basically say, she turns out, she's like, Hmm, you're not bleeding. Where should I put this Band-Aid? Uh, How about nowhere? How about nowhere? That <laughs> How about it? I'm not bleeding. What's a Band-Aid for? Yep. Anyway, uh, all right. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about studio stuff. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good tape off. I feel good, good about yeah. that. Uh, all right. So this week was a pretty wild ride because all of us are working on really big, elaborate things that require a lot of pairing and collaboration, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Lots of decisions yeah. being made. Uh, and no clear that. way to have a decision where you're like, yes, this was the right one, right? You can you can yeah. see a bunch of doors close in one path and a bunch of different doors close in another path, but you want some doors from each path. And so so you're just – You got to kind of – you got to start go. You just got to go yeah. and make a little map as you go and then back up and go over – you know, it's like one of those yeah. horrible labyrinths. And you have to think ahead as far as you can because they have like deep implications for a long time for features that you can't even imagine yet and that you definitely aren't going to work on right now. But you're still like, but I need to make sure I know like as much as I can about the implications of yep. these choices in my sea of infinite choices. Yeah. So the existing about this is we've been working on um, the quest system for Crashlands 2. And this is the first system that basically is growing up completely in the context of the Game Changer. Everything else we've worked on has like usually a few pieces that were already begun uh, pre-Game Changer days. And so it's been really interesting working on it because the first thing you do now is basically separate of saying like, here's what the game's going to do with a fact about, say, a NPC should be able to tell you that they have a quest for you. Um, you have to think about uh, how, to, how to structure just quests conceptually as like a big, big data pile such that you could grab the pieces that you will eventually want to, of course, achieve some experiential end. And so it's this really weird, it's it's nice in a way where it's very, it's like a consolidated version of what used to happen over the course of like a mix of implementation 
and that thought work about structural stuff is now very much like you just think through the structure of an experience that you want to deliver and then what that would mean in terms of the data that would underpin it. But you, and, but you do like all of that all at once while doing what Adam was saying, which is this sort of like, okay, well, if we do it like this, does it support experiences like X, Y, and Z that we've talked about? Uh, or does it like block stuff off? And so you start having to like, you're basically doing a lot of this future casting stuff based on the structure of the data that you're putting together and then making decisions about, they're basically really, really important ones about what is going to be possible. Right, based on certain yeah. kinds of structures. Yeah, so it's it's done a really good job of of breaking, like you're saying, instead of having the phases of development of the system be more like uh, ad hoc and iterative, it's it actually breaks it. Having the game changer breaks this design process into much more coherent sections. Where the first thing we do is is just figure out what sort of like values and fields and pieces of data would a quest have, right? So maybe it's like uh, it has a, a quest giver, you know, a, a character or a person or something uh, who, who you talk to or who potentially talks to you, mm-hmm. right, about like on their own, mm-hmm. talks to you about what it is that's going on. Um, and that also implies that, okay, well, we need to be able to set something like a dialogue chain or, you know, have something happen. We want, we want quests to be able to look at other things in the game and say like, this quest can only be, you know, accepted if you've completed a prior quest or if you've done something else in the game. Right. Um, so you, you basically, so we'd spent, I think it was an entire like day and a half, you know, mm-hmm. just talking through and thinking through all the different things that we wanted to be able to modify or set optionally, you know, mm-hmm. on different quests. And as we talk through it, we describe the data structure, uh, which then in the game changer, we can actually then see the editor. Mm-hmm. Like as we describe the quest in the game, in the game changer, we can now create test quests where we can't actually play them in the game. We just you sort of put design. together the data for it. Yeah. Yeah. You, it's yeah. A, so you build a quest. It's, and, a, it's a prototype, right? But as it's a low cost prototype that's actually very close to yes. the game because if the prototype works and is what we want, then now the data is So as a reminder, or as a reminder, for listeners who are newer, um, the game changer that we're talking about is a tool we use to basically turn data structures that we want into editors to make it easy to edit that data so that yeah. we can make it really easy to sort of describe the stuff we need in the game as like some kind of a data structure mm-hmm. and then have an editor automatically be spawned out of the ether to allow us to edit that so that people can go work on things without having to jump into the code to do stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's it's the closest thing to, you know, sis, like systemically working on this. It feels the closest to what I would generally refer to as like the sketching process for art, where it's like you're You'll be talking about something, you rapidly sort of throw down some structure to sort of say, does this seem like it works? Does it not work? Then you're able to actually look at it, evaluate whether or not it works. But the whole thing so far is actually still just cheap, like making changes is cheap. And that's the big difference. It's like before, you know, uh, a good example is like, you know, a couple of days after putting this, uh, this big kind of structure together, getting some test quests in there and stuff, it became apparent to me that one of the key decisions uh, that, that I'd advocated for was that, that asked about it, which is the idea of negative requirements. Can some can a quest ask if you have not done something, mm-hmm. which is complicated and, and adds a bit of some uh, annoyance in terms of selecting that. It's much harder to say, like, uh, have a field that selects for 
any kind of thing and also not having any kind of thing as opposed to just like always having a thing. So I had opted and pushed for just not bothering with it. And it became clear after putting together the first kind of larger series of quests that probably actually would be super useful in a variety of contexts to be able to have that. And in the past, this is the sort of thing that, you know, we would be a ways in and there's a lot of implementation that had already, like everything's so bound together that that'd be a sort of ask where it's like, oh, fuck, like it's going to take, you have to undo a bunch of things, whatever else. And instead, yeah. it's just a conversation where it's like, okay, is the is the value there as far as the story we're trying to deliver, uh, and what is, what would it look like to restructure the data so that that would work? What's going to break? And then it was like, okay, not a big deal. So it feels very yeah. light actually in terms of it. Basically, ends up being that that sketching process, uh, but in a program at a combination of design and uh, actual systems engineering, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, well, the, I think it's cool because right? it's because you're basically as the as a quest writer, right? You're going through the exact same process that you would if this was implemented in GIS, yes. like literally exactly the same process. And so you get to see if you can use it to convert the things that you imagine want, you know, that you want to do in your designs into something that the game would be able, would be, even though the game can't now, but the whole idea is it will be able to do whatever this thing is letting you do, right? And so we also get to experience what it's like to work on it in that mm -hmm. context. So you also discover usability things about like, oh, because the editor starts off fully generic, right? It's just like, well, it knows how to show you a text field. And so that's what you see first, right? And then you quickly discover over time as you're like trying to build these things, like what's hard, what's easy, right? Um, and what you don't have yet. So it makes all sides of it a lot cheaper to implement because you get to do it based on the reality of your experience as a developer yeah. versus what you imagine the experience might be like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and this this cool thing happens that that we theorized that this is how this would how this this is how it would go, but now we get to actually see that it's working the way we thought it would. Which is that in the past we would have uh, a big design sort of uh, session about some game system, but it was all talk. Mm -hmm. It's just like here's all the things that we want to have, right? And then at some point later, you know, we we would start to program that system, uh, which is sort of the implementation phase, right? And then there would be a lot of back and forth feedback rounds where programming would stall. Yeah. yeah. So like programming would stall because there's some unanswered design questions. We go back to the design, work on that, back to programming, blah, blah, blah. And, and throughout this time, there's a, a missing piece, which is content. Mm -hmm. So while programming that system, uh, I would, as the programmer, have to also be creating mechanisms to add content. So if we're talking about a quest system, not only would I be programming the quest mechanics, but also I would be programming some quests so yeah. that I could actually use those quests to Test experiment the with mm -hmm. the prototype, right? Um, and so it's a lot of like just back and forth and overloading the the programming side of things. Um and and while we're doing the design work, we're not actually producing something that's usable in the game. It's just a discussion, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what happens now with the game changer is is the design sessions are actually pair programming sessions where we create the editor for a quest. Yeah. And while creating the editor, we're also building quests in the editor to see whether or not it works the way we want. So by the time we're done with our, quote, design session uh, with the Game Changer, we actually have a bunch of quests mm -hmm. and and we have the editor to make more quests. 
And so now all the content and data is there and ready for the implementation, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this cool consolidation where the design process creates the data structures and the content necessary yeah. to, to implement stuff. So yeah, something that would, would have been, you know, a couple of weeks then happens in a couple of days. Uh, yeah. I think that's now, been, which is very shocking to me. It was like, cause we've, we've all of the stuff that we've been doing and a lot of the point of making the game changer was like, you know, we went somewhere to house all this, just all the stuff we know from making the original that um, the only reason we were able to finish that thing was because of the Crashlands creator that, that Adam had put together um, that allowed us to make these stories really, really rapidly. And, you know, on top of that, we just, we knew we just needed better ways to collaborate and do all the stuff. And there was, there was a general theory that probably we'd be able to reduce motion and handoffs massively by cleverly designing this thing where you don't have to do this. I mean, if you see this again, I think art's a, it's a useful place to look for really visible analogies for this stuff, but there's a lot of phases typically that artists go through that if you change the process by which you do your work, uh, you can essentially skip phases because they become integrated. So for example, let's say you're doing sketching, right? As a thing we we're just talking about, a lot of artists will sketch something and then they'll, they'll basically drop the opacity of the thing, draw over top of it again, the finished line work for it. Right. Um, if you use something like vector to do your sketching, um, you can just keep the same sketch because it's much, it's super easy to clean up and then you can change line weight and stuff after you've done the sketch. So you don't have to like redraw over the top of it. So there's, there's ways that you can, by sort of changing the method by which you, uh, you know, build up a thing, you essentially integrate certain parts of the process that previously were disparate where there is some handoff, there is some uh, motion, there's places where there's a lot of defects that could sort of show up downstream that end up just just disappearing. Because that's the big thing to me. Is like it, mm -hmm. It's not only that it would take, say, a few weeks to get something like this put together originally, but rather that even when it was done, one, it's more fragile, couldn't make big changes to it already, sort mm -hmm. of baked. Uh, and then two, it always missed the mark somewhat. And those two things put together meant that yeah, you're- Yeah, because there's just, you're just too constrained on on resources. Like, yeah. there's just not enough, there's not enough time to make it the way that you want and it's too hard to change and- yep. You know, there's too many bottlenecks. So at a certain point, it's just what you get is what you get. Uh, and this is what we've, this is as good as we could do. So moving on, moving on to the next thing, you know? uh, which we just don't have now. Yeah. I think that, yeah. so those are all the benefits. I think the cost is basically that is the comically, the, uh, the intensity of pairing on stuff like this. Uh, there's some, there's a really good book called Joy Incorporated, which is about, uh, there's this Annapolis software team, I think called Menlo. Yeah. Park? Menlo Park or something. <laughs> Um, yeah. who swear by pair programming and, and all sorts of much more collaborative uh, team-based uh, workflows where you're not, you're very rarely working alone. Um, and a lot of what they talk about there is that the surprise that new people who are maybe senior programmers coming onto the team feel after their first day and even every day after their first week, which is this like, holy fuck, my brain is just depleted <laughs> yeah i work like i work at seven hours like i used to work maybe a 12-hour job but like i work seven hours and i am a noodle uh this kind of intensive data structuring and, and constant decision making and then just the intensity that you're able to i think actually sustain because of pairing where it's just a lot it's frankly it's just a lot easier to do a lot more with a buddy um i think anyone who's done any house yeah. chores knows this like it's a lot easier and more fun um I think what it is is that, you know, doing really good work is like piloting a Jaeger, you know, like you've got to drift, you got to drift <laughs> uh, because, because it's just, it's too much. 
it's too much for one brain to handle. So you've got to share the load, you know? Uh, yeah, it does. Or it does kind of remind me of the idea of like, or of uh, just drifting from what's the fuck? What's that? What's that? Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. (laughs) For some reason, Poseidon was in my own. Like, that's not as close. Kind of close. close, Starts the P. Yeah. But, uh, it makes me think of like, uh, of drafting, right? Which is like, if you've got a one goose flying, then they're just like busting their ass mm-hmm. and they're going slow. They're working harder and going slower, right? Yep. Uh, if you get two geese, then they can like one of them can go kind of behind the other mm-hmm. at various points in time and pick up on the slipstream so they can they can cover a much greater distance mm-hmm. in a short amount of time while working this hard because when one of them gets tired, then back. they can they can start to draft off the other, right? So then ultimately you get like, you know, your your cool flying V formation that you have mm-hmm. like with the the Canada geese and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, I mean it's it's a good metaphor because it's just very true that like one individual person is gonna have ups and downs in their sort of like their brain power and their ability to focus and think through oh, yeah. different problems in different ways. And you get somebody else in there and then you just start drafting off of each other, right? And, and especially if it's go way faster. For I think stuff you're building that's cross disciplinary. Yeah. Um, I think that's the big holy shit. Like I'm yeah. cause that's what I was thinking about. I was like, okay, because a lot of people typically when you're talking about pair programming or pairing in general, there's the general point that collaboration is the quote unquote the most expensive thing, right? Because by necessity, it's multiple people working together on a thing. Um, and when I think in theory, each person could be working on a different thing and thus moving twice as fast, right? Yes. Doesn't match reality, but that's their it's argument the against it. Yeah. yeah. And so what I think is fascinating about that is uh, just experientially this week, basically, we had plotted out, we had answered all the des- all the design decision discussions about uh, how we wanted the quest to be last uh, Friday. I believe. Uh, and I had done art mock-ups for everything and actually exported all the art for how stuff's going to be displayed as of like Thursday of last week. Monday, Seth and I sat down and just from the start of the day to the end, it was a fuck, it was an eight hour just sprint and we got the whole thing schemed up and put into a data structure on the Game Changer side. Um, by, I think then Thursday or Wednesday, then uh, Jen and I had collaborated on an actual story structure for the opening of the game change the world, a couple other things, while Seth was building some of these other pieces and also sort of basically lightly collaborating the whole time. And you guys made answered. those quests. Yeah, and we made them. We didn't we didn't design them theoretically. We were making them hands-on yeah. in the thing. And so now With by, exactly the tools you were going to have at your disposal to make Yeah. So now by Friday, um, not only do we have basically the, the data structure that seems like it will work, and we know through just a few of these little tweaks and changes that are be very easy to make, uh, we've already got stuff like displaying a game a little bit. There's basically a few of the mechanics are actually you know, working and in. Um, and like, yeah, that day was, those couple of days were like very heavy mentally, but I'm thinking about the reality of, again, the cost, which is like, okay, so yeah, it took, you know, it basically took two people in, in some pairwise combination uh, a handful of days to do this thing. And certainly I could have been doing some other stuff, you know, infinite art to do. But when you're looking at the reality, I think of like the downstream consequences of not having done that. I just can't, and especially not in the game changer. Oh, I yeah. genuinely, I'm just like, I don't know. How did that? Like we a, do it? Yeah. <laughs> How did you do it? Was it like a, that's like a six week project with a lot of frustration and. Just got to take a lot of shortcuts. Yeah. You do it a different way, you know? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty exciting. I think, I think, you know, this time next week, 
uh, we will just have our sort of like first round of of actual story content in the game, and you'll be able to actually interact with it and stuff because it's all it's all there. The data's all there. We'll be iterating on it and developing, you know, all the in game systems and stuff. But yeah, I mean that's that thing just kind of springs up now. So awesome. which this this does make me even more excited for the prospect of some further game systems that we want to to add. Uh, like I, I'm particularly excited about trying to come up with what it means to have uh, buffs and debuffs and like what kinds of wacky uh, settings we can have on those where you can like, you know, we can build, a, customize and build all kinds of really interesting different like temporary effects, positive or negative, and then like, you know, attach them to, to items and potions and, you know, spells, or, you know, whatever. Um, and that those can just be sort of cranked out you know, whenever you need some new effect, you just for a quest where you're just like, mm, yeah, I wish I want to have this weird thing happen. Let me just make a little buff for that. And like, that's just, it's just used for that. Just in that one quest, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it lets us do all kinds of really wacky authored content. Yeah. And that's, cool. and that's kind of the dream, right? Is to have this, the ability to make content cheaply enough that you can have one-off things that do feel truly unique so that there's always always surprised like as the game unfolds uh, i think mm-hmm. we talked about it in the past but like playing the, the the latest mario on on uh Switch, odyssey, yeah. odyssey mm-hmm. where like every little subsection of every like level in that whole game is just new mechanics new mm-hmm. new completely new yeah. things right that then just get thrown away you never see them again and you can and, put your hat on all of them which and is you can put your hat on <laughs> yeah so yeah. like so, and it's like a different, I mean, it's, it's the same idea, right? Like for them, it's a different yeah. level of thing because they're truly just like having this kind of bizarre thing unfold uh, through throughout. So but they needed, they needed to keep you surprised as you went, right? Um, and, and they did novelty, that by creating those experiences. Yeah, novelty rate is a concept that is talked about a lot in, uh, especially mobile design practices where you're looking at like yeah. your, your puzzle games and stuff like that. Um, but novelty you know, is expensive. Novelty is expensive. So how do you make it not expensive yep. instead of just saying tools? Like, well, yeah. Yeah. Tools or in the case of most indies, you go with the sort of, uh, you know, that's where you get the roguelike combinatorial effects. That's what makes those things not each run yeah. novel, you know, is yeah. random combination. Yeah. Yeah. The danger of randomness, of course, being that, it can get it could be no sky. When being different, <laughs> it can still feel the same, you know, if it's not, yeah. if it's not yeah. done. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget uh, when No Man's Sky first came out and they, somebody made a, a juxtaposition of their, their E3 trailer where it's like, the, it's like the expectation versus reality of oh, yeah. all these cool looking animals walking around and then they cut and like this beautiful landscape and stuff and then they cut to the actual game and you know, everything in that game's procedural right so like some stuff is gonna be kind of weird and so <laughs> they let they go they go to this planet and it's just like this weird everything's just kind of this like shitty greenish brown <laughs> and then there's just this this animal that's got like two it's like it's like a t-rex kind of but it's like these two huge legs and it's standing completely upright and then it just has these two kind of flopping arms just <laughs> hanging off to the side and it's like eyes are looking in different directions and it's just kind of, it's just kind of like derping around yep. the landscape, just just stopping and staring off into the distance, not doing anything. Uh, and it was just like, okay, well, sort of similar. You know, some, I think the the risks of procedural stuff uh, pretty effectively. It's procedurally yeah. bland most of the time, basically. Unfortunately, I know yeah, no having guy. a huge volume of uninteresting stuff 
doesn't <laughs> yeah. make it more interesting, yeah. you know? And to be fair, No Man's uh, Sky has done both well and continuous pretty dope updates since their launch. I think they're doing yeah. pretty well these yeah. days. They have, they have taken a long time to deliver the recover. game that they said that they delivered. But, yeah. But again, I think, that's, I think that kind of speaks to the problem, right? Which is like they th- – they had the idea that that through procedural generation they could create that level of novelty, yeah, right? Where basically, like, create infinite content that's all interesting. Infinite content that's always fresh and interesting, and it turns out no, right? And so then now here we are with like five years later or something that by now they've done enough work to create actual like authored interesting content in the game that people like it now, right? But it it took a long time to get there and it wasn't really just like everything is random. Here's a bunch of random three, <laughs> yeah. 3d models of, of aliens. Um, that well, just wasn't enough. And right. so much of what so, they delivered over the updates was changes in the kinds of interactions you can have. Right. Cause I yeah. think that was, that was the big problem with the so original. Was that, yeah. It was just, it wasn't even that the variation itself wasn't that interesting. It was that the way you interact with it is the same and extremely limited. You just like, you harvest materials and then you can like scan creatures. So right? that was like, that's the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, well, and I think the fact that everything also broke down just into sort of like elements yeah. was because it's kind of like, uh, if you think about interesting fantasy stories or whatever, they'll be like, here's this like special orb and it does this, mm-hmm. it does this like magical thing, right? Like that, that thing itself has some kind of unique property that makes the orb you know, valuable and useful in certain contexts, right? So when you come across it, you're like, ooh, I can use this magic orb to like fly or get up this cliff or whatever, right? So that thing is special, right? Mm-hmm. But if if they're like, hey, we have this like system that procedurally generates all kinds of magical fantasy items, right? And it's like an orb and a wand and like a unicorn or whatever, but then none of them actually do anything. You just yeah. turn them into into elements, right? You're just like, all right, let me get the carbon out of this unicorn and just yeah. get like the yeah. silicon out of this. And then, uh, and then the you just you then everything is the same and nothing actually. Yeah, there was means that, anything uh, that like space different. terraria. What game was that? Starbound. Starbound. Starbound had the same kind of thing where like the landscapes were cool and interesting. Like the, it, it immediately felt like, Oh, this is like a dope sci-fi terraria, you know? But, but then when I interacted with things, I was always surprised, but on a good way, I was just surprised. Cause I would go to this like bizarre looking tree and then I would harvest it. And then I would just end up with like regular wood. Yeah, you, know, in my you see a tree, and you're like, "Oh man, this tree looks like a like a cactus made of steel yeah, or something." Like, cool. This must be this must have something crazy in it. And you shop, and it's like wood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it is an understandable hard problem to solve, right? Because you also don't want to have have to deal with infinite kinds of resources. Because then in the end, like, well, what are you going to do? Well, and how do you balance that? that you balance and, it? Yeah. So these are always hard problems, and it, and it makes sense that there's you know no game out there is going to just nail it for the entire possible gameplay experience as you go through where the yeah. whole time you're playing only good novelty, you know, and like good, good balance with that. Like it's not possible. Right. Uh, but there are these traps that are really easy to fall into. Um, and, and especially where there's like some thing you're really trying to do. So in the case of space terraria, it was like, Oh, you want, or in the case of no, it's got the same problem. Actually, same which problem. Is, yeah. we want you to be able to see kind of an infinite variety of cool stuff. Right. And so the moment you make that as a constraint, but then you're, but then you also have a constraint as, but this is also a crafting game, right? That's like a such a challenging pair because crafting games are all about like the resources that you get and trying to figure out how to combine them. 
exploration games are all about the variety of the resources you see, right? Mm-hmm. And if you want to have those two things together, there's a there's a combinatorial explosion there of just what it means now to mix these parts together that you can't just like design, you know, in a, in a custom way, really. Like, oh, yeah. I, yeah I've seen this trap experience. a million times. Remember yeah. the game Loadout? Oh, yeah. Yep. Where you or you could you could make make your own gun and it has like mm-hmm. all these different gun parts and you could like choose the barrel which changes how like how many bullets come out and like choose, change the body which changes like what kind of is it like electrical is it poison you know whatever that's also the one where you're naked can be naked right one of the skins that they added to the game was just you're naked with it's, a with a, a, with a, with a, with a floppy dong. Yeah. 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 Which was an interesting choice. An interesting <laughs> choice for sure. Uh, but yeah. And, and what, of course, ended up happening is that even though it, technically, math wise, there's like 39 billion guns in this game, there's one that's really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody uses that one yep. just because it's the best, right? In which case, and so and this is, I think it's your point. It's like, what you actually want, what players want too, is that those legendary guns. Right, the things that are author content. We've been playing Back for Blood, right? Yeah, uh, every Monday mm-hmm. for a good while here. The thing we want, the thing we crave, legendary weapons because mm-hmm. they have an opinion about stuff. Seth got this one the other day and, called and the, the opinions embezzle. are so fun. Yeah, They're so fun because they, they, they twist gameplay in a way that again, if you're procedurally doing it, uh, typically you can't quite manage it effectively. Where uh, in Seth's case, we've got the embezzler, which is a pistol that when you kill a zombie gives you like three bucks, right? So yeah. normally would and, and it makes like a little cash register, like ching <laughs> sound when you. Uh, <laughs> so normally, you know, this is not the sort of thing Seth was doing, but because we found that, uh, now we have to use it because it's that's just hilarious and awesome. That's just that's just free. That's just money on the yeah. table. But, yeah. but also, yeah. so often, like when you get those, you know, hand built sort of sort of devices, right? And and like Back for Blood is where it comes with a trade off, also, but also just yeah. in the game in general, like you're trying to. You're trying to balance a lot of things so that you don't get killed, but it also could do a lot of damage, right? Um, but then they'll do things like you'll get this legendary weapon that does something really cool, but also prevents you from like aiming down the sights now. So like mm-hmm. it's like a different kind of experience that in some ways is significantly worse, but also is a lot more interesting. And so over time too, you might like find other like weapons or something that you're looking at, you're like, oh, this does so much more damage, but then I don't get to make money when I shoot zombies, you know? And like, and you and you have fun. to make these interesting. So there's in, uh, in Borderlands 2, um, yeah, which has pretty, pretty fun uh, guns that come out. I, I fairly early in one, one playthrough stumbled across this gun that had infinite ammo, right? And so, and it wasn't even very good. It was, but it was fast, and it had infinite ammo, and it was, but it was accurate. It's just like and a legendary so, that they had was one of like the handmade ones because they have a bunch of handmade ones. Too. It was just, no, it was just a random. It was just okay. a random spawn that just like one of its features was like it's. It could have been a, a handmade one. I don't know, but I, I I remember just thinking like it just felt like a random you know hmm. sort of draw, and uh, and I used that gun for like through the entire campaign basically right because like. I never had to worry about ammo. And even though it required a lot more ammo as the game progressed to then actually accomplish anything. <laughs> just, just that, yeah, just that fact. I was like, well, it's kind right. of, it's kind of almost self-balancing, but it started to get you know hard after a while, but I was then so attached to it. And so I got to completely change my gameplay in this yeah. like, you know, chosen way by this completely out of balance thing that either was hand designed or was just the, a, a very rare outlier of like the kinds of like what the, the gun space looks like, right, you know, right. the possible gun combinations. And I think those outliers, which is 
That's all you which want. Which is what was yeah, and you could produce those with random generation if you design a system that is allowed to and can and does that frequently enough that people actually experience the outliers because that's what makes that's what makes the randomness interesting actually. Mm-hmm. And hand tailored content is just can be only outliers basically, right? Because you're just deciding exactly what kind of experiences you want to provide. Um, yeah. yeah, that's where you have games like uh, like Slay the Spire, which mm-hmm. I, I loved. Um, you know, that, that's one of those games where if they had said like, oh yeah, we procedurally generated thir- three trillion cards, right? And yeah. like you could get you could get any any we don't even know what the cards are in this game that you can build a deck out of, right? Then, then it's not whatever similar. happens to you is just uninteresting garbage, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so instead it's like, okay, there's like 300 cards or whatever that are specifically made uh, with the intent of each one being interesting in its own way. And we, we sometimes, yeah. And we sometimes talk about the idea of disrupted plans mm-hmm. as a game design concept, which is that, which is that the player is going to have some goals and plans of what they want to do next in the game based on what where they currently what tools they have, where they are, what they know, all that stuff. Um, and so you can introduce really fun novelty into the gameplay experience by disrupting those plans, by introducing some new thing, some new option, new capability to the player that suddenly makes them rethink everything that they were doing, whether it's like building a deck or what, like what kinds of weapons they're doing or, you know, or whatever it is, or even just where they're going to go next. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, to do that means that the, the, the item or the thing that you're introducing to the player has to be worth disrupt. It has to be yeah. interesting. It has to be, be worth disrupting your plans for. It has to change the game somehow. Or and make you want to change how you're playing the game because it is so interesting. Like, so like mm-hmm. these things where you can't aim down sights anymore, and you don't have as much power anymore, but now you have infinite money, right? Like where, <laughs> right. where you get to make one of these decisions where you, you're like, oh, this is so interesting that I'm going to go down this path and probably longer than like I really ought to because it's so interesting, right? Um, yeah, because if it's just different kind of for differences sake, right? Or if it's yeah. forced or if it's forced upon you, so you're not even making the choice mm-hmm. or if the choice isn't very meaningful because you're still within the, you know, like the, the core of the bell curve in terms mm-hmm. of variation, that just doesn't matter. Yeah. So uh, authored content is that's what it's all about, which is what why we made the game changers so that we can specifically create as many of these interesting combinatorial synergizing like plan disruptors, you know, yep. as possible. Yeah. Well, it, uh, in the end, it's all about because like, because procedural stuff has its place when you do want to provide certain kinds of experiences in like a cheap way. Um, but it's just always being wary of the trap because so. Things like procedural noise choice, right? Like, like if you got a bunch of sound effects for a creature, like it's procedural sound effects is what you could call it if you just randomly choose one of the sounds they're going to play when they do something, right? But like you can apply that kind of thing at any level to any degree, mm-hmm. uh, and but the question is always what is what is the goal? Are you trying to not make it obvious that a person is playing a game because that's a good use for like some aspects of procedural stuff because things aren't always ex- literally exactly the same, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if you're trying to, it's but it, not providing an identical experience is not the same as providing a different experience. Yes, makes sense, right? So, and I think that's the, where the, the trap. Yeah, is. yeah the, well, the, <laughs> you you can have a, something that looks different but feels the same, which is yes. what procedural most oftentimes devolves into. I think, right. if not applied correctly. Yeah, and that and again, and that can be enough to break your sense of like, oh, you're in a game, right? But it can't be enough to deliver novelty. Yes. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's. I think we're out of time, you guys. That's yeah, good. I wanted. To, I wanted to get to uh, uh, some questions this week, but we we'll hit them next week. We just we just kept going. So we pontificated. Uh, so definitely get your questions uh, asked over at podcast.bscotch.net, and we will we'll prioritize hitting questions next week. Uh, so we'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa DaCosta, for putting the podcast together, and thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, just go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.